tonight. I want us to, uh, it's not what you think, um, I'll, I'll say that up front. If we could get some people to clap and wi- or uh, snap their finger and whistle, but I won't do that either. But um, uh, what I want us to do for the next few weeks is to look at some television shows. We're not talking about the shows. We're just going to use the title of the show as a jumping off place. But I'll tell you, television has made an impact in our culture. Um, the, presently, the average American home has at least three television sets. Um, and, and it's been that way. It's been a huge influence in our lives for a long time. Uh, probably a lot of people sitting over in this section in particular have no idea um, what fine-tuning was about. Do you remember that fine-tuning knob you had to, to bring the picture in with? Uh, they probably don't understand what uh, aluminum foil has to do with television watching. Uh, probably have never worn an aluminum foil cap on their head, uh, but maybe most of us haven't done that. But uh, the, the, the rabbit ears, TV going off, at midnight, coming back on in the morning, national anthem twice a day uh, at close and uh, the beginning. Well, there have been so many changes with regard to uh, television watching. And in fact, everything used to be in black and white. And when it first started to go in color, they would announce it in living color. You remember the, how they would make a big deal about that. Well, it's impacted our society. So I thought I would use just the title of some of these uh, stories and uh, some of the the television shows to uh, use as a jumping-off place, as I said, for uh, some biblical lessons. Because here's what I find. TV's fictional. But the fictional fictional stories that entertain us through television and some from which we learn, they don't hold a candle to the reality that is seen in the Word of God in terms of uh, educational uh, material, uh, captivating stories, informative and challenging. Hey, the Bible has television beat hands down. So what I'd like for us to do is to, uh, well, tonight we want to talk about the Adams Family. I'm sure you remember the show, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Adam's family. And we're going to start with Adam himself. If you have your Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 2. And... Um, We read about the creation. Of course, Adam was the first man that uh, ever walked the face of this earth. Aside from Jesus in impact uh, on the world, I suppose Adam would come next. Adam has impacted the world. He's the father of us all. He's our relation connection. We're all cousins, uh, aunts and uncles or whatever, uh, that eventually go back to, to our common father, Adam. But Adam, um, as much of an influence as he was, it was the wrong kind. You see, if you have your Bible, you might want to keep it here in Genesis because we'll be looking at his family throughout the, the evening. But turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 5, and there's a statement made in verse 19 that tells us the impact, the influence of Adam on humanity. 
And he's even compared to Jesus, just in an opposite fashion. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Adam stands in contrast to Jesus. Because of what Jesus did in this earth, we have access to salvation. And because of what Adam did, he introduced us to sin and to death. His impact is far-reaching. Who has escaped the world that Adam introduced? Uh, It's a fallen world in which we live. It is not the Garden of Eden anymore. There are troubles and death and heartaches that God never intended for us to experience. It was supposed to be a life of, of unity and communion with God, and all of that was taken away because of Adam. And he introduced us to a world that was fallen because of him. I live in a world that has so many things that, well, move me away from God. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we can be made alive. Don't forget fathers, mothers, the influence you have on those who follow you. How many of us have seen families where children have suffered because of mom and dad's choices and decisions. None of us are made sinners apart from our own willingness because of what Adam did. He introduced us to a world that is a fallen world. Uh, we, we bear the, the um, uh, consequences of his decision, but we don't bear the guilt of his decision. We're, we're guilty by our own choices. But how many mothers and fathers have lived unholy, ungodly lives And because of that, their children have suffered. How many people have been touched by, you know, the abuse of alcohol or drugs or some substance? And what impact does that have on children? How many people have been unfaithful to their spouses? And and how has that impacted their children? Let's remember from Adam's own life, our great, great, go on, grandfather, just how powerful our influence is. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul said, I want you to understand something. No one, no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. You will probably help someone go to heaven or you will probably help someone go to hell. You're, you, you can't escape that. You have influence. People will either be made better by your presence or they will be made worse by your presence. Let's learn from Adam that we have tremendous influence. Let's be careful, watchful, mindful, walk circumspectly, as the Apostle Paul says, because of that influence. Well, let's move on from Adam. Let's talk about his wife just for a little bit. There's Eve. We're introduced to her as well in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In fact, what Eve is known for primarily is that she was deceived. She's the mother of all living. She's our mother. She's your mother. She's my mother. She's all of our, uh, she's mother to all of us. But her problem happened in Genesis chapter 3. Satan came to her in the form of a serpent and tempted her to do what God had told her not to do. And she bought the line 
she was fooled. She really believed what the devil said. She was deceived. And she partook of that forbidden fruit. And um, we suffer again as a result of that. And, and uh, they were denied uh, life in paradise because of all that. Uh, she was introduced to sin because of that. And shame because of that. And immediately there became a self-awareness that they, uh, well, a selfishness that they did not realize before then. When Adam gets in trouble and is called on the carpet by God, what's he do? He immediately, I'm looking out for number one, that woman you gave me. When Eve is called on the carpet for what she had done, she said, well, it was the serpent, it was the devil who did this. Everybody forgets about other people. They're looking out for themselves, that selfishness that we see. Eve was deceived, and I know, and we've gone through this before, but sometimes people will think, well, she must not have been. How do you get fooled? How many rules do you have? You need of anything except for this one tree. I mean, how do you break that rule? How do you get tricked into breaking that rule? Well, maybe we would have done the same thing. She's not shallow, it wasn't a uh, you know a weakness necessarily on her. She she made a mistake just like you have multiplied times over. But I want you to consider the deception and the nature of the deception and how that this is well maybe a grand scheme on the part of Satan. It was carefully plotted and planned uh, to to ensnare her. First of all, go back to Genesis two and verse fifteen and look at what the text says. Um, the Lord took God and uh, had him, uh, placed him in the garden to tend and keep it. And in verse 16, he said, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat it, you'll surely die. But now notice this, the very next verse. And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Eve has not been created yet. So Satan challenges her on a point that was set forth, a law that was set forth before she was even on the scene. So she wasn't there to hear firsthand. What she has probably uh, is repeated information. Oh, yes, Eve, and by the way, what, Adam, what, what God told me before you were around is that we can eat anything here, but we, we can't eat this one. So she has... Number one, secondhand information in all likelihood. But also notice how Satan goes about it. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He begins by questioning God. He's not going to just come right out and defy God. He questioned, did he really say that? And maybe that rings home to her because she wasn't there when he said it. He's calling into question something that happened before she was alive. So maybe, did he? Could Adam have told me wrong? Did God really say we can't eat of this tree? And so he questions God. Number two, he twists God's word. Look at what he says. And and again, look at chapter 2, verse 16, at what God actually says. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. 
God put it in a positive way. You can eat of every tree here except for this one. Look at how Satan twists what God actually said. What Satan said is, did God indeed say, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see how he turned God's statement that was a positive, you can have all of this except for this one thing, into a negative? Did God really say you can't have everything? Making God look like a killjoy. So he twists God's word just enough to put a negative spin on God. And then not only does he challenge or twist God, but he challenges God. He contradicts God. Look at verse 4. She said, yeah, he said that. And Satan finally gets down to the point and he says, you will not surely die. I know that's what God said, but that is not the truth. So she's called into question about an issue that was an issue before she was created. He questions God. He twists what God says. Then he finally comes right out and contradicts what God says and then questions God's character. You know why he told you not to eat this? Oh, is that what he told you? You know, the only reason he told you that is for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, maybe he's been leading us down the wrong path. It sounds like he has set us up. Why, all the time we could have had this good stuff and God has played a game with us. She bought it. She was deceived. And she partook. And maybe we would have too if we were placed in her situation. There's no inherent weakness in the thinking ability of Eve. She was just fooled. She was deceived. And that's what the Bible uh, tells us. She acted, well, without authority. She went beyond her role. She wasn't the head of her house, but she acted as though she was. She took it upon herself to do what was unlawful to do. And you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 2... If you look at the very end of the passage, it says, for Eve was deceived. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bible there. I want you to see something. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14. Uh, Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. That's been a difficult passage for a lot of people to comprehend. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that a woman has to have a child to be saved? Surely that's not what Paul is teaching here. He's not talking about the the salvation from sin, and for a woman to get salvation from sin, she has to have children. Surely that's not the case. I think from the context, what Paul is talking about is saved in what respect? Saved from what? What will she be saved from if she has children or pursues a domestic path? She'll be saved from making the same mistake Eve made. Eve launched out on her own and did what she was not authorized to do. She ignored the headship of Adam and disobeyed what he had instructed her. 
and launched out on her own, and she paid for it. If you want to avoid making the same mistake as Mother Eve, stay within your divine role. And, and it's just a, a part put to represent the whole, not just childbearing, but the whole role, the God-given role of the woman. If you remain in that role, you'll be saved from the mistake that Eve made. So there's Adam, there's Eve. Of course, there's Cain. If you have your Bible, you might go back again to Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have a son, Cain. And you know what everybody wants to know about with Cain? How did Cain go over there to that land of Nod and get that wife? Because um, where were all the other people? I thought Adam and Eve, you know, how did Cain get a wife from the land of Nod? Well, a couple things to, to note, just for clarification's sake. Number one, the events that transpire in the book of Genesis happen like this. You read one thing, the next thing, the next thing, and it looks like it's just A, B, C happens today, tomorrow, and the next day. There's time. You know, if I were to give a summary of my life, I'd say I was born in Weirton, West Virginia, graduated from Oakland High School, went to Freed Hardeman, and got married, and I'm living here in Tennessee. That sounds like you'd get that done in about a day and a half. But there's a lot of time involved in those statements, right? I told you a list of things that I'd done, but I didn't give you a time frame reference with regard to them. How long were Adam and Eve in the garden? How long was it before uh, Cain took a wife? We have no idea. Adam and Eve could have had many more children, sisters, uh, that Cain would have married. And furthermore, if you look more closely, it doesn't say anything about Cain going to some village and finding a wife and marrying this wife. It says that he married or that he knew or had sexual relations with um, his wife in Nod. He could have taken that wife with her. They could have been married before. It doesn't say that he got a wife in Nod. It says that he knew her in Nod. And furthermore, the word Nod doesn't necessarily even represent a village or a city or anything. It's a Hebrew word that just simply means wilderness. And isn't that what God sentenced him to? You'll wander. And so what he's saying is that in the course of time, Cain had a child with his wife in the wilderness, in the wanderings. So, but that's what he's primarily known for. But here's... here's Cain's mistake. And again, we speculate, well, what was the mistake? Was the mistake that he brought uh, an offering of grain as opposed to Abel's offering of blood? I don't think we can sustain that argument. Uh, Maybe that was what it was. But I know that God accepted grain offerings. Um, It wasn't an offering, didn't have to be a blood offering in order to be pleasing to God. It may be more likely that um, Cain didn't offer the best, whereas Abel offered the, the first fruits. It could be that it had nothing to do with what was offered, but the, the attitude of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 says, Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's because his was of faith. 
of faith may mean Abel did what God told him to and Cain didn't, or it may have reference to the attitude in which they did it. You know, maybe Cain went through the motions and Abel did it in faith. He didn't just go through motions. But whatever it is, Cain sinned. His sacrifice wasn't acceptable to God. And just like mom and dad, when he makes the mistake, what's he do? I've got to take it out on someone else. Adam, I sinned. That woman you gave me. Eve, I sinned. Or she sins. It was the devil. Cain, he sins. I'm so mad. I'm going to go out and kill my brother. Let's learn that when we make mistakes, we own up to them. Let's not blame our wife or our spouse, our mother or father, our children. Let's not blame our boyfriend or our girlfriend, our fiancé. Let's own up to it. If we sin, it's our fault. That's the only way we'll come to forgiveness. That's the only way that we'll ever bring ourselves to have God's forgiveness is that we humble ourselves. Cain had a problem with that. And uh, we don't see a pretty end to his life. Um, He's still referred to in the Old Testament or in the New Testament by the terrible mistakes that he made. And then let's just talk about Abel just for a moment. There's that other son, Abel, who he, uh, well, he was murdered by his brother. What we know about him is that he offered a sacrifice to God that was pleasing to God. And then he was murdered for it. A couple lessons we can learn. Number one, you can suffer for doing good. I don't know anything bad about Abel. And yet he was the first person murdered on this planet. He did the right thing. And yet he suffered. I can't tell you how many times I'll have people come in my office and and they'll be angry because they're trying to do what's right and they can't understand that why am I suffering if I'm trying to do right? Why does God allow these things to happen to me if I'm doing right? Listen, this world is not fair. Eternity is, but this world is not fair. God never promised us heaven on earth. He promises us heaven after earth. And good people suffer. Ask Abel. Ask Job and a host of other people. But I want you to notice again what the the Hebrew writer said of Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. He said concerning Abel, he being dead still speaks. The first man to ever taste of death. He's been dead longer than anyone else who has ever lived. And he still speaks to us today. We still know who Abel is, what he did. We know of his righteousness. Don't you want to outlive yourself? You know, that's one of the reasons behind the book that um, we, we, we did. Um, I, I wanted us to do something at Carnes that outlives us. L- little did we know at the time that Martha Insel would write an article for the book, and within a week she would have passed from this world. Martha's gone, but here we are 
come, I think it was in June sometime, we'll be reading her words in the devotional book. She'll live on uh, long after her death, not only through that medium, but through other ways that we impact people and and touch their lives. Uh, we, We need to live lives that outlive us. That's what being a child of God, I think, is about trying to make your mark in this world in a positive way that outlives however many years God gives you. I remember hearing a story once of a man who had gone to a, uh, an island and helped to uh, civilize that island. There were very primitive natives that lived there, and, and he brought uh, technology and so forth to the island to enable them to accomplish certain things, and um, he helped them uh, to establish a way to fish better and, and irrigation and so forth, and brought religion, Christianity, to the island as well. A number of years later, 25 or so years later, another man decided to go visit that island and meet this man who had transformed these natives into God-fearing people. And so he said, can you, um, can you take me to see, um, I don't know, Joe Smith? And so they said, sure, and they took him down to where he helped them set up a better way to fish. And they said, well, you, you don't understand, I, I, want to, I want to see where he lives. And so the natives got together and they huddled for a little bit. And so they took him to a field and showed him how that the water and the, the uh, irrigation and all this stuff was set up. And, and they said, here. And he said, no, you still don't understand. I want to I know where he lives. And so they huddled again. And they took him up on top of a mountain where there was a chapel where they worshipped. And they said, here. And he said, oh, so he lives here. And they said, yes. And he said, well, can I speak to him? And they had a funny look on their face. And they said, well, <laughs> no. Why not? Well, he's been dead for 10 years. And he said, well, I've been saying I wanted to see him. And he said, we showed you where he is. You didn't ask to speak to him until just now. I want us to have lives that live on after our years. Abel, first man to ever die. And yet he's still living in this world today through the word of God, his influence Wouldn't you like to know that after you're dead and gone, you continue to live on in other people's lives through good? And uh, that's, that's who Abel was. So that's a brief rundown of Adam's family. And it should be interesting to you because this is your history. This isn't somebody else's life. This is a direct ancestor, your ancestor and my ancestor. And there's much to learn from their lives. Some not so good, we can learn from their mistakes, but there are also things that we can learn from that uh, help us to be more godly and holy people. Each week we're going to take, uh, for the next four or five weeks, we're going to take a title of a television show and look at the reality uh, that that title um, reflects. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a child of God, why don't you obey the gospel? Um, 
what, what do you want your influence to be on your family, your friends? Like I said, no man lives to himself, no man dies to himself. You'll either help somebody go to heaven or you'll probably aid somebody in losing their soul. Do you want the latter? I don't think so. We're here because we love God, we want to do right, and if your life isn't what it ought to be, make it right tonight. Realize you have influence right now, tonight. If your influence isn't what it should and you're hurting people and being a stumbling block to them, ask God's forgiveness. We'll pray with you. God will forgive you. If you're not yet a child of God, we'll baptize you into Christ tonight and you begin living your life for him. If you need to respond, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing.